street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. put on by Chicago Atheist Society, of which I am president. My name is Bethany. If you have questions for us or if you want to get in touch, just come see me after. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, Anthony's going to take it over. He's going to let you know about the hashtag and how to get in touch with him and um, a lot of his information. So, Anthony Magamosco. Can everybody hear me okay? We're good? All right, awesome. Thank you for coming. Bethany mentioned that there's a hashtag, so there are people, we're, we're filming this, and we're doing this live, and we're, we're live streaming it as well. Dan is live streaming it using the hashtag AskSE. So if you are reluctant to ask a question to me during the Q&A, you can tweet using that hashtag, and then Bethany will be going through those and submitting those as well. So that helps the people who are watching this live to participate. Man, there's a lot to cover. I'm very excited to be here. This talk is the culmination of the last three years of my going out on the street and talking to people using Peter Boghossian's street epistemology. This talk is less of a how-to. You're not going to really learn how to use SE. There are countless resources out there now for you to do that. This is more of me taking a step back and looking back at the last three years of doing street epistemology and seeing like what what's going on what's happening in these talks what makes these talks special before I get started though I have a few people to thank I, I need to of course thank the Chicago Atheist Society Bethany Futrell and I had nearly a hundred emails going back and forth to communicate and, and coordinate this this discussion this discussion wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Dan Simpson who back in November of 2016 suggested that I come and speak to your group so thank you very much, Dan, for doing that. If you're not following him on Twitter, please do. He live streams all the time and uh, is a great proponent of street epistemology. I have to, of course, thank Steve, Kristen, and Trent as well for coming in early and helping me set up the, the podium. There's a lot of moving parts going on so we can capture this and share it on YouTube. I also want to just very quickly thank my family. I've put a lot of things on the back burner with my family to prepare for this talk, so thank you guys. I'm originally from the Chicago area. I grew up on the South Side, Catholic Italian neighborhood. I barely believed. I, I just never really bought into the whole God stuff, which was a big deal to my family. They were worried God was the oldest of four kids. But one thing today that I notice, especially as I look around and what's happening in the world, is that the beliefs that people hold when they're based on supernatural claims, like a God existing or karma is real or that there's a ghost squeaking their cabinet, that these beliefs motivate people to do some pretty horrible things. Sure, they do some good things, but oftentimes they will do some things that actually end up hurting people. A common question I always get is, why do you do this? Why did you spend the last three years going out on the street and talking to people and, and promoting street epistemology? It's because I see the harm that these beliefs cause, and I think SE is probably the best way to help uncover the justifications that people have for the beliefs that they hold. I'm dedicating this talk to my friend Nardo. He, uh, 
as a childhood friend of mine, passed away two months ago. I was actually here in Chicago two months ago for his funeral, and I was surprised that a family member had mentioned that. And my friend was always a deist as far as I knew. But on his deathbed, apparently, his close relative uh, communicated that he converted. He, he was afraid and, and reached out to Jesus. I, I knew my friend well enough to know that he would have been livid if he were to have heard somebody else doing that to somebody else. So these beliefs that people hold actually do have profound implications. I told you a little bit about myself. I want to know about you. I want to ask you a couple questions, just show of hand type of survey thing. We're going to really explore what sets street epistemology apart, what it is, and why it's important. It's gaining momentum. It seems like more and more people, particularly in the atheist movement, seem to be aware of it, seem to be accepting it, and seem to be using it. We'll talk about that. And then, I'm a very visual person, so because I've been taking some time to think about how all this works, I, I developed a little, I'm gonna, we're going to be building a model using some blocks, okay? So I'll be stacking them up here and we'll be talking about them. I'm not doing that to insult your intelligence, but I think it might help convey what's happening here to the audience and the people that will be watching this video. You probably even noticed this if you've watched any of my videos, that oftentimes people will raise barriers that prevent you from even having the conversation in the first place. And we'll talk about that. And then we'll wrap things up. We'll end with some question and answer sessions. Quick survey, just show of hands. I want to get a sense of who's here watching. Who here is familiar with street epistemology? Okay, that's good. I'd say that's 60%, maybe 75% of the people. Of those people that raised your hand, how many people have gone and attempted to use street epistemology? Doesn't have to be on the street, maybe just one-on-one -on -one over social media. Okay, about uh, a third of that number. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> All right, who here does not believe in any gods, deistic or otherwise? Show of hands. Almost everybody. Okay. Who here does believe in a god or gods, deistic or otherwise? Nobody. Okay, maybe, okay. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. All right. For those of you who used to believe in a God and no longer do, did you find that other beliefs that you held changed after you discarded your God belief? Okay, I see some hands going up too. Quite a few hands. Okay. Those ancillary beliefs that were based on the God beliefs. Okay, a lot of people. Well, that's good. That, that's sort of my understanding too, that once that God belief falls away, everything else kind of kind of falls off too. I've had hundreds of chats with people, over a thousand, where I would initiate talks with believers to see what they believe and why and how do they conclude that it's true. And I've given many presentations on street epistemology. I'd say this is probably my eighth or ninth talk on the topic. I've had the good fortune of being invited on a couple of podcasts like The Thinking Atheist and uh, Hemet Mehta's The Friendly Atheist. I was on Cognitive Dissonance uh, two days ago doing an interview with them. Um, even the David Pakman show uh, did a short little interview. While I'm qualified to speak about street epistemology, I'm not the person who dictates what it is. Okay, I want that to be very clear. These, this talk is based on my observations. They're not proclamations of what street epistemology should be. 
I think that, that this movement, what seems to be growing and gaining, is robust because we're getting pushback within our own community of what this should be and where it should go. Okay, so I may be saying some things that not everybody in the movement agrees with. This talk is also based on increasing evidence from people researching related domains of thought. I'm going to be bringing up two studies that show that street epistemology is probably the better way to approaching a person about their deeply held belief. Well, of course, this all started with Boghossian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. It came out in 2013. He's the father of street epistemology. Yeah, it's been a while. When I read that book, I was instantly enamored with it. I, I thought, okay, here's a guy who's saying that the way that we're talking with believers is fruitless if we're arguing with them. And it's actually making their, their epistemic situation worse. And it just it seemed to make sense because it, it, it was it was it was quite in line with my experience when I was arguing with my family members and I have people in my family that barely talk to me today because I was very aggressive with them. His point was don't argue but focus on the method being used. So it's a conversational tool to uncover the reliability of the method that people are using to form their beliefs. His book is very heavy on faith and. Every talk I give, I try to be very clear to say that SE can be used for things way beyond just God beliefs and supernatural claims. But this talk in particular will be heavy on faith. His book was heavy on faith, and this talk will be heavy on faith. And you'll see why in a little bit. You pretty much can't go anywhere talking about SE when somebody wants to question the belief scale. You know that, where are you in terms of your confidence that the belief is true from 0 to 100? And a lot of people get hung up on it. First of all, the belief scale is simply a crude attempt to get a sense of where a person is at on how sure they are that their belief is true. And it's optional. You don't have to do it. I've had people say, that's stupid. I don't want to put my belief on a scale. Fine, move on, no problem. But right now, we don't know of a better way. At least we're trying to measure or quantify the progress that we're making with an individual. So I just want to pop in on that. I, I think a lot of people get, get sidetracked on the scale and is it good and is it bad and it's, is it reliable? I mean, we're, we're, we are relying on people to self-report a number before and after the talk. They could be lying to us. We're not saying that this is the best and one and only way that it should be done. So I just wanted to address that. I think that's important. Street epistemology also appears to be remarkably effective for anyone that's watched the videos that are popping up on YouTube, not just mine, but other people or people live streaming. Usually within five or 10 minutes, you can see the person taking a break. They're thinking about their belief. You can see that light bulb moment of doubt across their face or their body language. It's, it's, it's wild. There's nothing like it. If you've ever had a conversation where you've used these approaches and you've seen that, it's, it's a rush to see. Instant change, of course, is unlikely. This is about placing a pebble in a person's shoe, giving them something to think about, to chew on, and, and ponder and say, why do I have that belief in my mind? And, and is the method that I used to think that that thing is true? Was that reliable? Of course, I also have to point out that SE, what you see on my YouTube channel is I initiate talks. You don't have to do that. You can wait. Just wait till they organically happen. But I found that initiating the talks is practice. It helps you get better at it. So when those organic situations occur, you'll be ready.
Fundamentally, though, street epistemology is about helping people. And I remember I was mentioning we're, we're going to be playing with blocks. Well, this green block here represents the person. This is the most important part of the belief. We are really focused on respecting the person, but challenging the belief. And when it's a deeply held belief, it's hard to differentiate those two oftentimes. Somebody had mentioned on my YouTube comments once that, Anthony, you do such a good job of making people comfortably uncomfortable. And I thought that, I almost like titled this presentation that, because I just think, think that that's just such a great way of summarizing what happens. You want to you make a person comfortable enough to feel open to share these thoughts that they have with you, but uncomfortable enough where they're stepping away from the belief and examining it and thinking about it and being open to possibly even revising their belief. I love that. This is probably the goofiest looking pie chart, but this, this does make sense. So we've got how, what, and why. Take a step back here. People have been watching videos. They've been contacting me. Experts, linguistics PhD student who is, is just fascinated by what's happening in these videos and like, what is different? What, what's hap what, technically, what's happening with the words they're using and the pauses and all this stuff? So I've been ha having a dialogue with her and that actually got me thinking, well, yeah, what is it about what is going on there? We've had some people that were transcribing the videos and just the act of reading the conversation as opposed to watching it was like, it was a light bulb moment for me. It's like, whoa, there's, there's something really interesting going on here. And I think what's going on here is the types of questions that we're asking. And I have three categories here. How type questions, what type questions, and why type questions. If you want to know what these percentages are, the, I didn't go through every video and count these up, but roughly, I think, in order for a conversation to make, uh, to be a good street epistemology-related conversation, I'm thinking 10% of your, your questions should be related to what they believe. It doesn't have to start with the question what, the, the word what. What does the person believe? Why do they believe it? That's about 20% important. But the majority of the conversations that make them unique help the person think about the belief, I think, are these how-related questions. And we're going to really get down into what those are. This is not a hard and fast rule, okay? Don't say, well, Anthony said I can only do 10% of my questions. What questions? No. But I think that's what's going on and what, ma what makes this unique. This is something that should be researched further. The first types of questions I think are going on are these what-related questions. We have to understand what the person believes, and I'm using this silver block to represent a supernatural belief like God. It's silver, it's special. Okay, so we got our God belief. We need to know what the person believes in order to inspect it with them. And that belief can be very tied to their identity. What type of questions help us understand the claim, the meaning of words, one certainty. While what questions are important, don't spend too much time here. How many times have you argued with a Jehovah's Witness about blood transfusions or you talk with a Muslim and the first thing that you talk about is that Muhammad married uh, a young girl, okay? Or <laughs> Mormons shouldn't drink alcohol. Those are all what the person believes. Sure, it's good to know what their definition of God is, but I wouldn't get too hung up on it. Okay, here's an example of a what type question. What do you believe? Would you define that word for me? Notice that it doesn't start with the word what. Okay. 
How confident are you that, that this belief is true? Knowing where a person is in terms of their confidence is a what-related question. It helps me get a sense of what they believe. How committed to it are they? Second part are these why-related questions. And these identify the justifications that people usually give for their belief. Now, we can get into whether or not they form the belief first and they're presenting the justifications or these really are the reasons, the justifications for the belief. That's a whole other topic and one that's very interesting too. But I want to represent those with these blue blocks. Okay? These blocks represent the type of why questions. What I found though is when you ask a why type question, usually the person will give you a what answer. If you ever listen to the atheist experience and they ask why do you believe that, listen for the caller to tell them what he believes. It's very interesting. A couple of sample questions here. Why do you think a God exists? What makes you think that this belief is true? That's still a why type question. I want to understand why they believe it. Can I get your best example? I've had a lot of conversations with people and I wanted to, to somewhat mimic a talk that I had with somebody using these blue blocks. I had a person once say that the belief was fed to me as a child. All right? So I ask you, why do you believe it? It was fed to me as a child. I was involved in a serious rollover accident and I survived it. That's another reason why I think my God is real. Okay. All right. Got that. Another one they might say is, just look at the human eye. It's so complex. It had to have been designed. Okay. Another why. All right. These are the reasons why the person believes in the, the God. Yes, it can be used for anything, but this talk is really about God beliefs. Where most atheists, I think, veer off track is focusing on these. The person might say, well, look at the eye. It's so amazingly complex. We might come back and say, well, the complexity of the eye is due to evolution. And they may come back and say, well, microevolution, yes, but certainly not macroevolution. Okay, do you see how we're kind of, we're adding on? And then we may come back and say, micro, macro, it's the same damn thing. The only difference is time. You do realize that the earth is 4.6 billion years old, right? And they may come back and say, well, they carbon dated a snail and that snail was millions of years old. Okay, you see how we're piling on and we're not peeling back? I see this all the time in conversations with atheists and believers. I'm going to just remove those two, pull that back. There's one more special justification that I see time and time again in these conversations. And it almost always comes down to faith. I believe it because it was fed to me as a child. A good question might be, has everything that you've been taught turned out to be true? No. Okay. There we go. I survived a rollover accident, so I know that my God helped me. If we were to look at the statistics of rollover accidents and realize to your satisfaction that they were actually quite common, surviving it, would you still believe in the God? Yeah, I'd, of course I would. Okay, very nice. Just look at the complexity of the human eye. It had to have been designed. If it could be demonstrated to your satisfaction, how the human eye evolved, would you still believe in the God? Well, yeah, of course I would. That's about the time where the person will say that they're believing it because of faith, represented by that yellow block there. The topic of faith is a major premise in Boghossian's book. And what I found by having all these conversations with folks, when it comes to supernatural beliefs, 
even the ghost sweeping the cabinet or the God being real or that I'm sure that that was Muhammad that helped me through that difficult time. These beliefs are almost always based on faith. Almost always. So when that happens, when somebody drops the, the faith bomb, as we like to call it, it's very important to understand what they mean by that word. It's possible that a person may use the word faith and define it as sufficient evidence. It's entirely possible. So, man, so many times I see atheists get really upset when a theist says that, well, you use faith too. Ask them what they mean by that word. How are you defining it? Is it hope? Is it trust? Is it reasonable expectation? Um, the assurance of things not seen? Let them define the word. I, I've had a lot of theists get upset and say, atheists are defining what this word is for us. Don't do that. Let them define it. Because it doesn't really matter what their definition of that word is. What matters is, is it reliable to support the belief? See if it holds up to the scrutiny. Uh, the last type of questions I wanted to point out is the how type of questions. You hear about Boghossian talking about the Alinkus phase. The how-related questions help us examine these justifications as well as faith. I think how-related questions, these how-type questions, are the most difficult to answer. Atheists, I think, rarely ask theists about their how, and I think theists rarely think about their how, those how types of questions. Here's a couple samples. How did you determine that this belief is true? Is your belief testable in some way? Could you ever discover that you were mistaken? The beauty of SE, as you can see in this model, hopefully, is that these types of questions help identify and probe the foundation of the person's belief and ultimately help both of us determine if they used a reliable method to support the belief. I want to show you a video here. This is with a woman named Joanna. I met her on a, on a trail in San Antonio. She, was, she just got done doing a hike. This conversation is 20 minutes long, so I start about at the eight minute mark. There's a little timer going on. So we've built rapport. I've understood what she believes. She believes in a God. I've understood why she believes. It was something that she was taught. It just makes sense to her and faith is one of those reasons. We've asked a lot of what type questions and why type questions, and the clip that I'm gonna show you is going to focus on those how-related questions. And her main justification, as it turns out, is faith for her belief in God. If this belief that's in your head mm -hmm. and this 100% certainty that the God exists is based on a foundation of you being raised and taught something, how can you be certain that it's actually true? That's kind of like how we were talking about earlier. <laughs> it is very faith-based. Um, we're going to definitely have to unpack this yeah. faith-based thing. I, I think we it, keep... it is pretty broad. Um, what is a faith-based Faith-based is that you can't see him, you can't always hear him, you just have to believe that He'll pull through for your favor, and even if it isn't in your favor, that he'll work into your favor somehow. Because <laughs> a lot of negative things happen in life, but it really depends on which route you take that. Um, but, gosh, how... That's a way to put it, too. 
I just think it's something that's inside of you as well, which can go along other religions too, because like being out in nature gives you a lot of peace, but when I pray I have a lot of peace, and I feel like I have more direction, and I pause and reflect more, and you know, like I said, it's, it's faith, you can never be, uh, kind of like you're thinking about that 90%, but I don't know how else to put it, that's hard. I haven't actually talked that out with somebody before fully, so I don't really have words. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, can I ask you one more question and we'll sure. wrap it up? Yeah. I suppose my question is, if you couldn't use faith to conclude that your God exists, to now the 100% level of confidence. Mm -hmm. If a faith-based foundation wasn't an option for you, mm -hmm. where do you think you would be in terms of your confidence that the God existed? Because like I said before, there's not really, he's not literally standing in front of us right now, if that makes sense. I mean, okay. yeah, you said you can't see him, you can't exactly. hear him. Um, a lot of people kind of need concrete things in front of them in order to kind of have that 100% faith, or not faith, faith, sorry, 100% trust in something, especially something that you base your whole life off of. I feel like if you don't have, faith is one of those things where you don't always feel like you're in control, and I feel like as humans we always like to have control. <laughs> and. Um, it's another thing where I kind of everyone kind of strays off of their path, but I always find my way back. So. Okay. Um, yeah. May I ask you one more question? Uh, th this will, I promise this will be the last <laughs> one, unless you say, "Please keep asking me mm -hmm. questions." But this yeah. is my last one. In these conversations that I've had with lots of people, regardless of what God they believe in, and regardless of how they were raised. They will often say that I believe it because of faith. I can't see the God, I can't hear the God, but I believe it. And they are believing in completely different deities. Wildly different. So my last question to you is, is faith a reliable way to come to know something to be true if anyone can use it for anything? <laughs> oh, wow. You got me there. It doesn't change what I believe, but... Actually, I have a really good point. A lot of religions or a lot of faith. Oh, it's faith-based. So maybe another way to ask it. I beg your pardon? Is there another way you can ask that? Is there another way I can ask it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Or is it a question, or is it kind of like an opening? We can of? certainly end it on that point, and if yeah. you want, I know you you seem like a thinker, mm -hmm. and if you want to think about it, and we can, you know, I, if I never hear from you again, that's fine. Yeah. But if you want to ping me, I can give you my email address. Yeah. I could rephrase it to leave it with you one more time. Sure. You can yeah. think about it. I'll give you the card. Yeah. So I suppose the final question that you can either answer now or just think about mm -hmm. would be. 
If anyone can use faith to conclude that anything is true, why on earth would they want to use that method? I'm definitely a thinker. I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> well, I really like chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. That was Joanna. <sighs> Love that talk. So she says something there. I'm going to ponder. Uh, when you are using street epistemology and you hear somebody admit that they're willing to slow down and think about that deeply held belief, that's huge. How do you how do you ever get that when you're arguing with somebody and presenting them with facts? Street epistemology, well, why should you use it? Well, it's easy to learn. There are so many more resources that are, about, that are out there now besides Boghossian's book, which came out in 2013. There's the Atheos app, which uh, I had the good fortune of being able to be part of that team and work on it. There's the private street epistemology Facebook group. You have to, if you're at all interested in SE, please submit a join request to that. There's the street epistemology website and blog. There's SE tutorial videos. Many other people besides myself are uploading content to YouTube and they're, and they're live streaming like Dan does. And people are even forming street epistemology groups in their own cities, which is really interesting to see. It's also incredibly efficient. SE avoids all that crazy back and forth that seems to go nowhere. Remember the whole piling on instead of peeling back? If you really want to see like a theist and an atheist argue for hours and hours and hours, just keep asking what and why questions. I love SE because it goes right to the foundation. And I want to show you an example. Now, if you've been watching my talks or you, you follow my YouTube channel, you may have seen this clip. Have you guys, show of hands, who's seen this before? I see a few hands. Okay. It's so freaking good because it just, it so perfectly illustrates how we can, we can easily get wrapped up discussing a completely different topic that has no bearing at all on the belief. It's just the, the uh, scientific evidence proves it's just like any kind of drug, you know, like oh. the first time you watch it. Do you value scientific evidence? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if definitely. Denzel, if we can provide you, if I can provide you or somebody that follows us closely, yeah. if I discovered some scientific evidence that showed that everything that you've just described very eloquently it doesn't work in that way. They've interviewed 10,000 porn stars and 100,000 men and women, and the overall result suggests that it's a positive. All right? People feel better about themselves. They're living longer. Marriages are actually prospering. Crime is going down, like across the board. And I don't even know if that could even be measured, but if it could, if there was a, a reliable study that showed something completely different than what you're outlining just now, would you change your mind on it? Uh, no, I wouldn't, because at the end of the day, I do, val I do value, like, you know, scientific evidence, historical evidence, and that, and that kind of stuff. But at the, end, at the heart of it, like, I'm a Christian, so I live, like, by a set of principles. So that's Denzel. And, and I hope you don't get too wrapped up on your view of porn. That's not the takeaway here. <laughs> the takeaway here is that we could have spent hours arguing about the pros and con cons of pornography when his position was not based on scientific evidence, even though he's a very scientific evidence-based person. 
he would still hold to his position because he's a Christian. He has a deeper belief that's propping up that other belief. I love that example. It's very hard to give a talk on street epistemology without mentioning the backfire effect. This was a study that came out in 2009 by a fellow named Nihan and Reifler. They conducted this study with politically right-leaning Americans who thought that Obama was a Muslim, a secret Muslim. And they started providing those folks with facts to show, well, no, he's a Christian. And what they learned was, what do you think they learned? You can yell it out if you want. They didn't change their mind. In fact, they were, they were even more convinced that Obama was a secret Muslim after they were provided with all that evidence. So the science seems to suggest that arguing with people and providing them with evidence isn't effective. SE seems to be the best way around that. There was another study. This one came out at the tail end of 2016. Jonas Kaplan, Sarah Gimbel, and Sam Harris, they worked together on this really cool study about how we resist changing our minds about deeply held beliefs. This is basically the backfire effect study with the brain scan. They put individuals, and this time they, they, they picked left-leaning, politically left-leaning people, and they started presenting them information about gun safety, about gun control, facts that contradicted their position on it. And this is what happened in their brains. Two areas of their brain lit up. These areas of the brain didn't light up when they were presenting them with information about contradicting their belief that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb or their views on paper bags versus plastic. It was when it was a deeply held belief. This is where they saw the most brain activity. The first one in yellow is the insular cortex. And the amygdala here is shown in green. This is the area that responds to threats, physical threats. This brain activity is nearly identical to what happens when you see a bear charging at you in the woods. That's what's happening in a person's brain. And it gets me thinking, wouldn't it be cool to, to blow this out and, and, and see if we can get studies and do research where somebody's laying in an MRI and we're having the same conversation about a deeply held belief, but using, not presenting them with facts, but using street epistemology. Would the same areas of the brain light up? Would they not light up as much? Do they light up more? Is there some other area that's, that's being triggered? I think that would be really fascinating to do. I still get frustrated talking to some believers. I try, I try very hard, but if they're, if they're so locked in their views, it's, it's difficult for me to even stay calm, especially if you know the doctrine very well. So if you know the Bible really well, and they know the Bible really well, and you're battling these verses back and forth, the frustration is going to be your own worst enemy. And I want to show you this clip. It's with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's on the Joe Rogan show. And I want to show this clip because I want to, I want to illustrate that even very smart people can be subject to this, this frustration. And in fact, completely missing that they did something good. I was so excited. I just randomly picked this episode and I was listening to it and I was so excited because they were talking about changing minds. What do you do? What te techniques work the best? And... Neil deGrasse Tyson was basically explaining street epistemology, that he uses it. So I went from this great big high to this crashing low, and I want you to see if you can pick up what brought me down. Well, this is what I want to talk to you about. What is it about people that there's this, there's, there's this very compelling need 
to find something out that other people don't know, like the world is flat, like dinosaurs aren't real. Like that kind of stuff is very compelling to people. So what I do in those cases in the... In the Bigfoot. Uh, yeah, so what I do is I would say, um, instead of debating them, and some of, some of your listeners are listening to this right now, what all I would do is say, what is your best single bit of evidence for what you're claiming? And what would it take to show that you're wrong? Mm. All right, well, let's go okay. with a simple one. So, so, so that's what I would ask. Okay. And I've done this exercise, and it doesn't work. You know why? Why? Because there was a guy who didn't believe we went to the moon. We spent a third of our time in our last session go yes. there. So there's a, 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 someone I know who doesn't believe we went to the moon. Well, let me just say he's skeptical. So I said, what kind of evidence would convince you? He said, images of the landing site of the Apollo missions. So I said, okay, here's a website where we sent, uh, in fact, it wasn't what it was the Chinese, I think it was the Chinese or Europeans, sent a, a probe, to an orbiter to the moon so that it was close enough, because ground-based telescopes are not, uh, don't, they don't have the resolution to see the landing sites. But if you get close enough to the moon, you can. It, it photographed the entire surface of the moon, and there were the landing sites, and you saw the rover tracks and the, 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 the base for the lunar module. And so he, that night, he went home and found it. And then he came back and says, well, NASA could have faked that. Well, I'm done with you. We have no more to talk about. Because he's not ready to be convinced. Well, that's a weird because one, too. I because I gave him the right. evidence he asked for. Exact evidence. That would convince him. And it did not convince him. That's so, a singular so, so I event. Said we ha I have no other conversation with him. I don't know if anyone caught it, but Neil discovered something very important there. That his friend's belief was not evidence-based, even though he said that it was. If you do have an evidence-based position, you should be able to provide evidence that you would accept to change your mind. But Neil, I think, in his frustration with his friend, missed it. He missed it completely. And he gave up on his friend. Please don't give up on people. This was, was so frustrating to see because Neil discovered something wonderful. He could have said, it appears that this belief is based on something other than evidence. Since you won't accept something to change your mind, what else is going on there? He should have started probing deeper. This is the equivalent in my mind to seeing your friend drowning in a lake, tossing them a line. He grabs it. You start pulling him in. And just as he's getting close to shore, you throw the rope back in and walk away. Please don't give up on people. What makes this situation worse, in my opinion, is that at the time of this talk, 2.2 million people watched Tyson give that advice. People are worth helping. Don't give up on them. And by the way, Neil, if you don't believe in any gods, you're an atheist. Notable atheists also appear to be noticing street epistemology. I noticed uh, David Silverman did a debate recently. A debate. And he was essentially using macro SE. He was asking how related questions to his opponent which his, op his opponent avoided answering the questions, and a whole entire audience and people watching the video watched that. It was fantastic. And I think it's worth noting that he 
views street epistemology as firebrand, even though it's a, it's a very friend, friendly, cordial approach. The fact that you're engaging with somebody and you're challenging them a little bit, he classifies as firebrand, which is pretty cool. Interestingly also, I had a chance to talk to him. He was in San Antonio giving a talk, and he said that when he goes around and gives his firebrand talk, audience members ask, where do I go to learn how to talk to a believer? And he directs them to street epistemology materials, which is fantastic. You may have seen Arun Ra, one of the most aggressive atheists out there, very firebrand. He took time out of his busy schedule to come to San Antonio and learn street epistemology with me, and we filmed that, put that on his channel. I think nearly 50,000 people have watched that. That's huge. For, for a person of his stature, someone that loves arguing with people, to try to hone a different skill in his arsenal, that was huge. And he spent a huge amount of time editing and uploading that video, and, and, and it was fantastic. Who here watches the atheist experience? I, I've been watching it for, for years. Okay, almost every hand in the room. Is it just me, or do they seem like they're asking more how-type questions? It's not just what do you believe and why, it's how did you form that belief? And that's very exciting to see. Believers are noticing street epistemology as well. That's fine. We don't have anything to hide. When it first came out, it seemed like they were demonizing it. You know, they, they, a few, few people were going around showing my videos in church and saying, this is like the knockout game where you jump out and clock somebody. But these days, it, it doesn't seem to be... They seem to have changed their tune a little bit, these apologists that will, that will go out and defend their beliefs, uh, their God beliefs. It seems like they're now trying to mimic it, you know, going out and saying, hey, would you like to have a five-minute talk, which is kind of interesting. So I think they're getting it. Like they're understanding that it's, effective, it's a, an effective conversation tool. But the second you switch gears and say, now that I understand what you believe and why and the reasons, the how, um, the method, now let me tell you why Jesus is the right answer. At that moment, it ceases becoming street epistemology. I was at a conference in Dallas about a month ago. There are a lot of these apologists, Christian apologists, that defend the faith and they write these books. And, and I, I think they recognized me and they were familiar with my work. And every once in a while, I'd go to the different talks and there were these little, little, little hints. Like they talk about street atheism. Or they would say, well, you have these people going out using the Socratic method with 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 theists, with Christians, but they're just, not using the, they're just not using the Socratic method right. It's pretty funny. All right, tools and projects. There are a lot of things going on in, in the street epistemology group, in the movement, if you, if you want to go call it that. I mentioned the book in the Atheos app. There's also the street epistemology field guide that was put together. It's a 35, 40-page document put together by people who have gone out and had these conversations. It's fantastic. We are building an SE-based lesson plan for classrooms so we can start teaching this at a young age. And it doesn't have to be about God beliefs. It could be about just all sorts of claims about reality. We are recognizing that these conversations are so effective and people are abandoning their beliefs that we need to have a community for them. There needs to be an aftercare component to street epistemology. So people who are abandoning their God, their God beliefs know that there's a community out there for them. And we have to. We have to break out of the atheist bubble. There's no reason why SE cannot be used for all different types of beliefs. And we have to move beyond atheism.
I want to go back to our model here a little bit, and I want to talk about a couple of different barriers that can get in the way of having the conversation in the first place. So I lugged this thing all the way from Texas, so just bear with me here. But okay, so <laughs> barrier. Now, there are very common barriers that can come up, like the venue just, may, you may be in a noisy bar, how can you have a conversation there? Or the, the person makes the claim and they're a four-year-old kid. Okay, there are certain things, basics. Another thing is consent. You really want to have two willing parties to have this conversation. If, the, if you're not willing to conduct it or they're not willing to be a part of it, then don't have the talk. But I wanted to get in some of the, some of the advanced barriers. The barriers that I'm going to be covering, they're not justifications for the belief. They're barriers. They're defenses to prevent the belief from being examined in the first place. I've had this one. I, I was warned about you. I was warned to not talk to you, Anthony. This actually happened uh, on a university near me where uh, a Christian pastor, I think, was, was people, his, these students of his flock were coming to him and asking, should I talk to him? And I think he was advising them not to. When you start off on that foot, how can you have a conversation? That's a barrier. One good question could be to ask, is your pastor warning everybody on the campus? to not talk to me or just the Christians? You know, is he warning the Muslim Student Association? And you can start talking about the value of truth or the benefit of questioning, the benefit of doubt. Those could all be good ways to avoid that barrier. I've had this one. Somebody said, I would probably kill somebody if I didn't have this God belief. If this God belief wasn't here, I, w I would harm somebody. Obviously, you have to be careful here, okay? Because um, they, may, they may be serious about it. There was one guy in particular, we talked for 10, 15 minutes, and he was going on and on about all the great things that he would do for people. He would stop on the side of the road and help them. And then he drops this one on me. Well, if I didn't believe in Jesus, I'd kill somebody. It just didn't seem, it just seemed like it was a sort of knee-jerk reaction. And I gently pushed to make sure that he was really serious. And he wasn't. And I think he, he was either conditioned to say it or... It was something that maybe he maybe thought he was expected to say. So people may be saying these types of things just as a defense to protect their belief from, from being examined. And again, just to reiterate, you've got to be careful here. Like if somebody says that and they're serious, just end the talk. Move on to somebody else. Oh, this one. It's true for me. I could spend an hour on this topic alone, and I'm not going to because we're, we're kind of going long here. But if somebody thinks truth is subjective, that it could vary from person to person, there's no sense talking to them about their God belief. If they think everyone's God belief is true and everyone believes in all these different gods and they're all true, you've got bigger fish to fry. You've got a, lot, a bigger, more serious topic that you need to examine don't advance until you fully understand what they mean by the word true. Get their definition. See if it's any different from an opinion as, as opposed to a fact. There was a, recent, there was a recent podcast. Sam Harris had jo Jordan Peterson on, and they met twice so far. In their first episode, the second half, the whole topic was about Peterson's use of the word true and truth. And Harris, rightly, didn't proceed until he understood what he was saying. And I think he got a lot of flack for that. People were complaining that he should have just accepted it and moved on. No, 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 no. That's a big stumbling block. It's huge. And this whole idea of 
truth varying from person to person is a big threat. It's a big threat to humanity in my, in my mind. Okay. I just know it. I just know my God exists. I know it because I know it because I know it. That is uh, what, what Bogosian would call somebody who's doxastically closed. They're not even willing to entertain the idea that, they've been, that they're mistaken. It's not a justification. It's a defense. Okay? A possible way around that is to ask them what they think about people who believe in completely different gods who are just as convinced that they're true. There's a terrorist right now getting ready to kill themselves or somebody else. I guess they would probably be killing somebody else. Right? Because they're absolutely convinced that their belief is true and they're just as confident as you are. That might be just what you need to break through. Okay. I know it, and you in fact know it too. Because you know things, my God is real. Because you can't know anything without my God. This is the presuppositional argument. Not a justification. It's a defense. And probably the weakest one that's out there. A very frustrating when you encounter it. When I first encountered it, I was like, what kind of argument is this? What's going on here? Just asserting that you know it makes it true? In that situation, I might suggest asking them when they first decided to use that argument. There must have been a point in their life where they never knew it, and then they were told it, and then they thought it was a good idea. Focus on that period of time. Bogosian often says that it's all about honesty, and I think I finally understand what he means by that. Think about that talk with Joanna, how honest she was. When a person is being honest with themselves and with you, that's when the barrier goes away. That's when you can analyze their belief. And this is a two-way street. We need to be just as open and honest with people about our own beliefs. All right? There's a chance that a God might exist. I want somebody to use SE on me regarding my position. There's one more type of block here. And I've got some red ones down here. I've been hiding them. These represent the actions that people take, these motivated actions, because they hold the belief. Now, I'm going to use some negative examples. And as I mentioned at the start, I think, people can hold beliefs that are not true and still do good things because of it. All right? But there's nothing that can't be done by secular means. I want to focus on the beliefs that are actually causing harm. He joins the PTA to promote Bible study in public school. Right. He pushes for abstinence-only education and is against birth control. He'll donate $100 for a theocratic politician. He'll dismiss global warming because he says the Bible says that God will take care of everybody. He'll say a prayer instead of making a donation or actually helping somebody. He plans on taking his family to the Creation Museum this summer. If you are remotely interested or worried or concerned about the activities that are happening up here, you should be helping us in the street epistemology movement where we're concerned about what's happening down here. And you don't have to be down there in the trenches with us, but support us in some way. Help promote a video. Tell a friend. These last three years have been great because I've learned a tremendous amount of things. I've learned that supernatural believers have insufficient evidence for their claims. 
I've learned that SE appears to be the best way to help people discover that without closing them down. And I've learned that supernatural claims almost always rest not on sufficient evidence, but on the unreliable foundation of faith. SE has the potential to be a real game changer. I know that might sound a little far-fetched, but I really think that could be the case. Imagine if we developed a robust aftercare solution for people who are exiting that process. Imagine if SE can break out of the atheist bubble and becomes mainstream for all belief claims. Imagine if graduates from the clergy project were given an alternate career path and were training people on SE. Imagine if there was a lesson plan developed to teach this approach in schools. This one is actually near reality. We've, we've been working on that for the last year. I think that we can drastically improve the world for the better with this approach, a world where people base their beliefs on a body of sufficient evidence and discard unreliable faith. Thank you. Alrighty. What is your elevator pitch to describe street epistemology? I would say that street epistemology is an approach of talking with a person, not arguing with them, to better understand the method they used to conclude that their belief is true, and if that method was reliable, so that they may decide to find better reasons to keep the belief or discard it outright. Are there organized efforts to make street epistemology more mainstream? Organized is a tricky word. So we have about 3,000 people in the private Facebook group. That's a pretty good number. They come and go, but there's, there's sort of your hardcore group that's always there. There's definitely interest and intent and desire to want to help change things, but there's very little structure. There's very little organization. There's no money. This is all volunteer-based. There's no money behind this. I guess this might be a great opportunity to say, like, if you have an estate and you want to leave it to something, contact Peter Bogosian and set up a trust or something. Like, I think the money could be used. Like, I talked about that research project. Wouldn't it be awesome to have people in MRI machines engaging with somebody using SE and finding out what's happening in the brain? I would freaking love that. The movement, for lack of a better word, is just very grassroots. It's kind of you know, what you see if you were to go in the private group. There's people who are interested in it. But it is getting the attention of a lot of people. There are a lot of people with expertise in psychology, motivational interviewing, linguistics, who are interested in what we're doing and they want to support us in some way. So there's no organization yet, but I think that's probably the natural progression of that. Being calm and listening is just not in my nature. Do you have any advice? There's three years worth of content on my channel. If you watch the, one of the very first ones that I've uploaded, you'll notice that I'm, I'm nervous. You can tell it in my voice and I'm question, 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 question. And it took a lot of time to slow it down, to, to remind myself that it's not a race. And me slowing down and paying attention and listening and repeating only makes the situation better. So a lot of it is just selective pressures from my environment and talking with people that have helped me fine-tune it and tweak it. Freaking Aaron Ra gave it a try, and he was pretty good at it. When he tried really hard and stuck to it, later the wheels came off. Okay, I bet I'll give him credit. You know, he, he did really well with it. It just wasn't, I just don't think it's in his nature. 
there's a place for all these different types of approaches. What I like to tell people who would say, I just don't have the personality to do it. Number one, you could practice and, and do it. I really do think you could. But number two, if that's not something you're comfortable with, then just don't do it, but try to support us in other areas. Like I mentioned before, share a video, tell a friend, try to support us in some way. You don't have to be on the front lines talking with people, but you can be doing video editing or like what the people here are doing behind the scenes. You know, setting up events like this, bringing in speakers, help us get the word out about the method. You don't have to be doing it, but you can help us promote it. How is street epistemology different from proselytizing? I would normally ask what your definition of proselytizing is, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yell one out, and if it's not it, let me know. Telling people what to think. Is it okay? Yeah. Okay. Right now I'm proselytizing for street epistemology to you and the people watching the video because I want you to be aware of it. But when I'm having a conversation with Joanna, I'm never telling her what she should be thinking. I'm asking her questions so that she will tell me. Now, ultimately, it's quite possible that she may discard her belief in her God and become an atheist. And hell, the title of Bogosian's book is A Manual for Creating Atheists. It's hard to convince people that we're not proselytizing for atheism. But I don't really think that that's the case. I think it's the natural progression of these types of conversations. You can see how effective in the videos that these talks are. So I can definitely understand how someone might see that we're proselytizing for a worldview. But I, I just don't quite see it that way. I, I really don't. I, I think that if you are able to set aside your biases as much as possible and try to be neutral, there is a possibility that Joanna may have a freaking great explanation of why she thinks her God exists. And I'm open to it. But admittedly, within five minutes, maybe ten, I can get a sense of all her reasons, and I've talked to other people in the past. And you could argue that because I'm continuing on with the conversation, I could possibly be directing her to some sort of conclusion, you know, that the God doesn't exist or that faith is unreliable. But I do try to let the conversations go where they are, but I am cognizant of that complaint. Ultimately, it comes down to wanting to believe true things and wanting to live in a community where the majority of the population believes true things. So if, if I'm proselytizing for anything, I would say it's for a respect for the truth. It's for people to value truth and to see truth as objective. That, I think, fundamentally is the motivation behind all of this at its deepest level. What was it about your conversations that ended in frustration? The conversations that go off the rails are because we, didn't, we weren't careful on the what type of questions. I made assumptions about what they believed or what their definition of the word faith was. Kind of like if I wasted 30 minutes talking about pornography with Denzel and then realizing that it's not based on evidence, it's based on his godliness, it's like, oh, you know, those types of things. Or maybe getting 30 minutes into a talk and then realizing that truth is subjective. I've been experimenting with this lately where I'm, before I even get into the what and the why and the how, I have this simple little experiment where I have these candies in a container and I want to see if they think that there's an even or an odd number in there. And we start using that as a vehicle to discuss truth. Very simple. Do you agree that there is either an odd or an even number of candies in the container? If they say, well, it could be both, I'm not going to ask them why they think Jesus is their Savior. Okay? So there, there's, that's, that's probably it. It's maybe getting a little too sloppy and rushing through it and making assumptions. Have you ever used this method with family and friends and not just strangers? 
I have. I made a blog post about this. It's called Using Street Epistemology with Loved Ones. I'll include a link in the description. And while the approach is the same, understand the why, understand the what, completely get into the how, those types of questions, I think it's harder when it's somebody that you know because you have a history with them. They know you. They might be like, we always argue about God. Why are you asking me questions about it now? Like, what's changed? And you can just tell them, well, I'm trying something called street epistemology. I want to understand your foundation and how you got there. It's certainly more complicated, but from a technical perspective, it's no different. There are unique challenges that make it harder. They know you. They may know your view on the topic. Like, you may have argued and told them that they're stupid and that type of thing. Uh, that's, that's so hard to overcome. I go into greater detail on how to get past some of those obstacles in the blog post. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start having these talks? Keep it really simple. You don't have to like live stream and, and record it even. Although I, there is some advantage to even recording audio with their permission because you can listen to it later. Listen, just listen. Make a point to say, I'm gonna ask this person what they believe. I wanna listen to all their reasons and I'm gonna thank them for their time and walk away. I'm not even going to question them. I'm not even going to try to get an I don't know out of them. I want to see if I can permit myself to listen and understand what they say and walk away. Set very simple goals. How do you respond to someone who says they have evidence for their belief? Somebody says that my belief in this God is based on evidence. Then the natural progression, I think, would be, well, I'd love to hear it. Tell me what it is. And let's start examining it. And how did you conclude that it's sufficient? How did you conclude that it's reliable? Is it testable? Is it repeatable? This whole idea of what constitutes sufficient evidence is a, is a big challenge because I do think that theists and atheists tend to view evidence differently. A personal experience is really solid evidence for a believer who thinks that Jesus was in the refrigerator or something. But... An atheist might be a little more skeptical about that. I think we're going to start seeing people moving away from faith as their explanation, and they will start saying, I have evidence for it. That's where it's going, and that's a damn good thing. People will very often say, I believe that this is true because I have evidence. But when you start peeling back the layers, that lower layer of faith is always in play. When all those other layers start getting stripped away, that's all they have. They really don't have much more than faith. Okay, that was a great question. Yes, ma'am. What do you do if someone says that their evidence is in the Bible? The discussion needs to shift to how did you determine that what is written in the Bible is reliable? How is it any different? How? How is it any different than another holy book? There's my neighbor down the street who reads a completely different holy book who's just as convinced that their God is true because it says so in their holy book. How can a neutral observer tell the difference between the two? Well, I have faith that it's true. It'll usually be the response. Why do some people reject evidence that contradicts their belief? We saw an example of that with the Joe Rogan, Neil deGrasse Tyson clip. That person received evidence, but it still wasn't sufficient to them. I think what you need to do is just keep the talk going to find out why they do think that it's true. There are some people I think that they have beliefs because it sets them apart in some way, possibly even morally. They view themselves through a moral prism because they're holding a belief. It's actually virtuous. I'm a better person because I'm believing in this thing. Bogosian, I think, is actually preparing to give a talk today on that topic where he gets more into that. There's probably something else going on that makes holding these beliefs virtuous and thus harder to abandon, even in light of evidence. How do you respond to people who believe something because it can't be explained? 
Well, I might point to an example of a time where there was something that we didn't understand how it worked, but we did. There were people who thought that there was, there was a God sending lightning bolts down from Mount Olympus. Were they justified in being confident that that God existed because it was unknown? I might start with something like that. If you can identify something that we don't know, we currently don't know how life can arise from non-life. I think that's still open, right? Abiogenesis. If that could be shown to your satisfaction, how that could work chemically, that a cell can form based from all these chemicals, would you abandon your God belief then? Sometimes people will say yes. If I were to see that, that would lower my confidence significantly or I'd abandon the belief outright. But oftentimes you get the Denzel response. Well, no, I would still believe it. And then you've discovered that they're not basing their belief on those things. I think you've described the God of the gaps argument and you get that quite a bit. We don't know how this happened, therefore it had to have been my God. What kind of obligations do we have to direct people who begin doubting to support related resources? I think we have a tremendous obligation. I would love to see a point where recovering from religion is very tightly working. I think we might, may actually be heading there, but very tightly working with the, the people in the street epistemology movement so that we just naturally direct people to recovering from religion. If you don't know what that is, it's an organization that is there to chat with people who are doubting. And they don't instill doubt, RFR. They're there to listen to you and provide you with resources. I've been starting to, to give cards to people with my contact information because I do feel like I have an obligation to be there for them and direct them to resources. And, and sometimes even know when to pull back because it's too difficult for them. So do no harm is a huge part of SE. We don't want to destroy people's lives. We want to help people. I think I had a slide about that earlier. It really is, we, we do want to help people that are going through it, and that should always be at their best interest. How do you feel about being out as an atheist? If you can be out, be out, because that helps normalize atheism. There's a lot of people that can't. Just like there are people that don't want to do SE or would feel uncomfortable doing it, there are people that just can't be out as atheists. But if you can be out about it and not be ashamed of the label, then by all means be out. I had an experience where we, our neighbors moved in. The first question was, what church do you go to? And uh, I said, well, we're atheists. And they said, is that like Scientology? <laughs> like, no, no, no. It just means we don't believe in any gods. And they were interested. And, and I'll be damned if the neighbor, I said, well, you know, I'm kind of curious. Why do you think your God is real? She said, for me, it's all about faith. But yeah, if you can be out, you normalize it. That same neighbor ended up asking my kids to babysit for their kids and watch their dog and did holidays together and special events. And they now know an atheist family. We're not evil. And that does help. It broadens the community, it normalizes it, and it makes it less scary to come out. Yeah, once that crutch of community that's so tied to the religious belief is gone, they're done. They're done. Can you imagine if 50% of our population in the United States didn't believe in any gods and were open about it? Do you think the other 50 would be believers for much longer? I don't think so. Do you have any suggestions for speaking with presuppositionalists? There's different flavors of it, but I think generally speaking, they're of the position that they know that their God exists because they know things, and they're convinced that they've discovered this in the scriptures and that it's true. I wish I had a better answer to how to deal with them other than perhaps focus on how they first heard about it and why they think that it's actually true. Or you might say, well, do you have any children? Do you have any young kids? Yeah, I've got a seven-year-old. Well, does that seven-year-old know 
that the God exists? Or are you planning to teach the seven-year-old that she knows that the God exists? You know, taking a step back and, and just learning about the mechanics of how they're coming to this conclusion might be the best way. Frankly, I think the argument is so disingenuous. I really think that a lot of the people that are gravitating to that by just asserting that it's true have concluded that they don't have evidence for their belief and they realize that faith is unreliable. And that's the last ditch effort. That's the last thing that's keeping them in that belief. I may be way off, but that seems to be my view on it. How should I respond to someone who asserts that they know what I believe or know? When somebody says that, the first thing you want to do is just say, well, how dare you? All right? But if you're going to be aggressive and you're going to be argumentative, think about the, the science that seems to be behind that. It's not going to help. Definitions, I think, will be very important. What do you mean by believe? What do you mean by know? Get them to define those words for you. Talk about examples. Are there other things that you think that I believe that I haven't disclosed to you? You can even shift the topic from the God to something else that they think that you know. But no, no, they may say, no, that's the only thing that I, I believe that you believe. It gets confusing with the words. But um, yeah, that's infuriating. It's so hard to take a step back. But you have to remind yourself, if my goal is to help a person, arguing with them and presenting facts is not going to help the situation. Excellent questions. What do you think of appeals to supernatural explanations for a belief? I'm open to the possibility of there being a supernatural realm, but I just don't see any evidence for it. And I don't know, even know that I, that I can articulate what evidence I would accept. If you make an appeal to supernaturalism, you're basically opening, opening the door for any explanation to be the case. You know, Jesus rose or invisible ninjas took the body. I'm of the position that I try to believe what I can see and experience, and that's testable. That's testable through the scientific method. That seems to be the best way to come to, with a high degree of certainty, know the things that we know. What's the best way to keep people on topic? You try to interrupt them as politely as possible and redirect them to the topic. It can be tough. There's a fine line between interrupting and looking like an asshole and politely interrupting and redirecting them. So I was having this conversation with a lady who was certain that she could tell when people were going to die. She could walk the hospital ward and she's like, well, that, that, that person's going to die tonight. And the person would die. And she wanted to give example after example after example. And I, after the third one, I'm like, I think we've got enough examples now. Can we get back to how you are sure that that's exactly what's happening? Sometimes you just have to interrupt. You can redirect. You can say, it sounds like you're very passionate about this and you really want to talk about it. But I'm not so much interested in what you believe. And I understand why you believe it. But it's the method you used. Let's start talking about the method. You can just very clearly lay out what your objective is and your goal and your plan. Like, I want to help understand why you think this is true. But if a person is there just to preach at you, that's another barrier. I, I, did, I didn't make a slide for it. I thought about it. I, I met a lot of street preachers. That's another one of those glass barriers. It's not a justification. It's something there to prevent the belief from being examined. Mm -hmm. Another piece of advice there is to change the venue. So rather than battling it out with a street preacher in front of the Alamo, Invite them for coffee. You know, have them put their books away and their script away and just have a heartfelt conversation about why they think their God is real and how they concluded that it's true. Have you noticed any patterns in response across religious beliefs? You know what it is? <laughs> yeah, well, it's faith. Whether they believe in Vishnu or Allah or Jesus, a pagan goddess, 
It's not evidence. That seems to be the common theme. They think they have evidence. When I start asking a few simple questions, they realize they don't. And the last fallback position before atheism, I think, is it's based on faith. And we all know how unreliable faith is. So I think that is the common theme that I see. That being said, I, I try to remind myself that they may have a better explanation. They may, they may know something that I don't know. And I want to be open to it. I would say, and I'm stereotyping here, I would say Muslims usually will say that they know that their God is real because their holy book aligns with reality. You almost always get it. It's so in tune with science. It's the scientific method, so therefore my God is real. I get that a lot from Muslims. With Christians, I would say I get a lot of personal experience, prayers being answered, miracles. I was raised that way. usually permeates all the different beliefs too. Why should we not give up on people who hold wildly unsupported beliefs? In the case with Denzel, who was very convinced that porn was harmful, we discovered that it wasn't based on evidence, it was based on another belief. If he were to come to realize that his belief in that God is not true, those other ancillary beliefs, those red blocks, those motivated actions, his position on pornography, for example, or probably hundreds of other things, will fall away. I have to remind myself that these beliefs that people hold, you guys see this too, these untenable beliefs harm other people. They're doing harm. Why wouldn't we want to help? Why wouldn't we want to make the world better? And the process is pretty freaking straightforward. This is not a difficult thing. This is us getting beyond our frustrations and our biases and our anger towards believers. This is an act of compassion having these types of conversations. And again, if, if this isn't your thing, that's fine. That's fine. I, I understand it. But it really comes down to wanting to help people. What advice do you have for believers who are watching this talk right now? I would advise them to please be honest with yourselves about what you believe and be open to engaging in a conversation with somebody who's using this method. If your belief is true, if your belief is really true, you should be willing to participate in a short conversation or two, several would be ideal, to understand if you use the reliable method to conclude that your belief is true. And by all means, learn this method. This isn't just for atheists. We want every human being to learn this method. I would love it if a Mormon learned street epistemology and engaged with a Muslim or a Muslim engaged with a Christian. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's pretty damn unreliable. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.